Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. Each week, I talk about issues of faith, life, and the Bible, and try to relate them to everyday life. Although I come from a Christian perspective, I hope that everyone can find something of value here, regardless of whether or not you disagree with me. I've learned that when we seriously engage in important conversations, some disagreement is inevitable. I've heard it said that there are two things that we should never discuss among friends and family, religion and politics. The implication is that religion and politics are fraught with potentially relationship-ending conflicts. And I've seen that borne out quite often in our politically contentious environment. This week, I'm going to ignore that piece of advice on both counts. I intend to talk about both religion and politics and how they exist in constant tension. Let me be clear from the start that I'm not an apologist for Christian nationalism. Far from it. America is not a Christian nation. That's precluded by the opening words of the very first amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. That being said, the clause that immediately following those words, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, is evidence of our Founding Fathers' appreciation of a religious ethos among the colonists. Today, Christianity in all its diverse forms is by far the majority religion of the American people. Further, many of our laws and standards of behavior are based upon Judeo-Christian principles. The large number of Latinx immigrants seeking citizenship keeps increasing the Christian minority since they are overwhelmingly Roman Catholic. However, we are becoming more and more religiously diverse. Our cities and towns are home to thriving Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, and a seemingly endless menu of religious communities. I would say, therefore, without hesitation, that America is a religious country, as shifting and fickle as the sands of that religious foundation might be. And our religious diversity is a strength. Serving as a Christian pastor for over 30 years, I made and honored the pledge to never preach partisan politics. I believe that the members of my congregation should be given the right to make their own decisions as to which political candidates to support and what positions they take on political and social issues. That is fundamental to our democracy, and I serve people from the entire political spectrum. I also believe that it was my job, to the best of my ability, to provide those same members with the biblical and theological resources and background to live their political lives in a way that was consistent with their professed faith. And that's what I'm attempting to do here today. The Old Testament prophets of Israel 
put the will of God into a political context right from the outset. God required more than worship an empty ritual, they preached. God requires that we act to establish his justice in the world. The prophet Amos speaks the word of God saying, I hate, I despise your festivals. This is God speaking, by the way. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In the New Testament, Jesus takes up that prophetic mantle as he confronts both the religious and political forces of his day. As he begins his ministry, he states his prophetic call. We read in the Gospel of Luke, When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's assume, then, that as religious people, it is our duty to actively involve ourselves in the political life in order to be agents of justice that God intends. But how are we to discern what God wills for us? What is just? What is righteous? In almost all political issues facing us, we find faithful, committed Christians and people of other faiths staking out conflicting and even contradictory claims. Consider the current debate over abortion rights. Many Christians speak out stridently to severely limit or totally ban abortion out of reverence for life. And other Christians espouse a more tolerant view of abortion practices out of respect for the sovereign rights of women over their own bodies and health. Who is right? How do we decide what agrees or disagrees with God's will? On the most practical level, whose cause will you support and how will this knowledge affect the candidates you support and vote for come November? If we take seriously our responsibility to act faithfully, we will not blindly assent to the unverified teachings or preachings of public figures and celebrities, no matter how popular they are and how loudly their voices are magnified by media. We must instead make our own informed opinions, be responsible for them, 
and evaluate carefully popular ideas in accordance with our faith. One of the first places that Christians turn to for answers on moral issues is the Bible. We hold that the Bible is the authoritative voice of God in the world. But turning to biblical authority is not a simple matter either, because we're dealing with a collection of documents that were written thousands of years ago. Sometimes within the Bible, we find inconsistencies and outright contradictions. We have to educate ourselves to interpret the teachings of the Bible so that they apply to our modern context. That requires that we must first learn about the culture and historical situations in which the biblical authors lived and wrote. For example, throughout the Old and New Testament, slavery was a common and acceptable practice. Even Jesus assumes, assumes the existence of slavery is a given and doesn't challenge it. We will not be able to turn to Scripture for direct arguments to condemn slavery. We'll need to rely on more general principles, such as Jesus' gospel of love and compassion for other human beings. From there, we can go on to establish more enlightened and evolve understandings of slavery. And we have. Today, slavery is rejected universally. Another significant aspect of society of biblical times is the predominance of the patriarchal culture. Women and children were granted little or no value and could exercise limited control over their own lives. Once again, we have to rely on more general principles in developing our social opinions and practices. For example, Jesus and the prophets consistently emphasize the importance of caring for the widow and the orphan. The trajectory of God's salvation history recorded in the Bible bends in favor of the poor, the sick, and the dispossessed, as is evidenced by the Amos passage I read earlier. And our political practices should be informed by that. The biggest problem using the Bible as an authority in political discourse is its silence on so many topics. For example, the concerns of the LGBTQ plus community and fluid gender issues are not directly addressed in the Old or New Testaments, other than a few oblique references to aberrant sexual behaviors. Our attitudes to what comprise acceptable sexual behavior and gender identities has changed and continues to evolve. None of us could comfortably live within the articles of the ancient holiness code to govern our behavior. That's exactly the attitude that we reject in the oppressive authoritarian rule of the Taliban in Afghanistan. Armed with a sense of compassion and understanding that we receive from the Bible, we turn to other sources. One of those sources is a church. The Roman Catholic Church has historically held itself to be the ultimate authority for Christian believers. Protestant denominations invest less authority with the church, but still see themselves as playing an important role, mainly through the teachings as 
communities of moral deliberation. When we are confronted with moral questions and dilemmas, we can legitimately turn to our faith communities, those communities we trust for answers. Unfortunately, fewer and fewer of us turn to the church for advice or submit to its authority. We live in an age of scientific enlightenment. The human intellect has greatly improved the quality and quantity of life through the ages. The physical, biological, and social sciences help us to understand the universe, life, and the behaviors of human beings. Technology has multiplied the power of these fields of knowledge and our access to it. Unfortunately, this power, in addition to leading to progress, has been misapplied in ways that have harmed our environment and led to greater iniquities and injustice in the world. It is our sacred duty to educate ourselves to the best of our ability to use scientific knowledge as a tool in the shaping of the kingdom of God, not a weapon. Your own most valuable source of authority lies within your own soul. We each possess a conscience. As Christians, we believe that God's Holy Spirit lives within each of us and speaks to us. As the Apostle Paul says, with sighs too deep for words. When confronted with moral dilemmas, when the world seems to be going crazy, it's time for us to open wide our hearts to those sighs too deep for words. People of faith possess great powers of moral discernment. It's what makes us human, children of God. Let's turn to the life of Jesus for a final perspective. When he was about 30 years old, as best we can tell, Jesus decided to move his base of operations from Galilee to Jerusalem, a couple of days' journey to the south. Now, this move would set in motion the events that would fulfill his God-given destiny. He did this with the full awareness of the danger and opposition that he would face from the Roman government and from the Jewish leadership headquartered in Jerusalem. Mixing religion and politics would prove fatal to him. Hear this reading from Luke. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him, and on their way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. Whenever I read this passage, one phrase always catches my attention. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. In modern figures of speech, we don't commonly talk about setting our face to do something. Instead, we'd probably say that we made up our minds to do something. Even though we don't use the biblical wording, 
pretty easy for us to understand what it means. Jesus has made up his mind to go to Jerusalem. But that doesn't fully capture the sense of what he's going to do. Jesus had committed himself to confront the oppressive and unjust powers of the religious and secular authorities. He had a purpose, a sacred purpose, from which he could not be deterred. In those important times, where the political decisions we make may have lasting consequences for our country, our world, and for our humanity, this is of utmost importance. What will you set your face to do, even when people aren't willing to hear you? What is your purpose in the world? What is your responsibility as American citizen? How will your faith guide you? I turn to the Apostle Paul for a final word of inspiration. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist, and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. May God strengthen and encourage you as you set your face to accomplish his will. Amen. Thank you for joining me today. May God bless you and keep you. May God's face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May God look upon you with favor and give you peace.